Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this morning. We've got some philosophy bright and early here for you today. So we've been working on a series about Alexander Dugan and his book, The Fourth Political Theory. It's got a lot of very interesting things today. This is part three of that series. And so we're going to be delving into our next set of chapters and looking about at some concepts where he addresses kind of the changes of the idea of civilization, changes in the idea of liberalism, and all kinds of other stuff. We'll be delving in there real quick. Now, with me is Michael Millerman. He is a Dugan scholar. He helped to translate the fourth political theory, and he himself has written a book on Alexander Dugan and his thought. Michael, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you again. Absolutely. So we're going to jump in right where we left off in part two. But before we do that, guys, let's hear from today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is a conservative nonprofit dedicated to educating the next great American. ISI understands that conservative and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and compelled to defend their reputation and dignity while seeking to carve out a brighter future. ISI has a variety of different content, events, internships, and fellowships geared towards helping students and opening up career opportunities. ISI offers graduate students and entry-level journalists the opportunity to receive fellowships and secure internships. Nate Hockman, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, got his start on National Review through ISI, and he's just one of many journalists and academics who were able to start their careers with the help of ISI. This spring, ISI is going to be hosting a debate between Michael Knowles and Deidre McCloskey on the subject of transgenderism that will be live-streamed on YouTube. In the fall, everyone's favorite Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, will be giving the keynote address at ISI's annual gala. On all issues, both economic and cultural, ISI wants their students to know that they're not shying away from the problems facing our country, because in letting the left win is a pathetic way to watch civilization die. To learn more, check out ISI.org. That's ISI.org. You can follow the link down below in the description of this video. All right, guys, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Now, we've arrived at Chapter 7. If you'd like to catch up with our discussion, all the previous discussions about this book are linked below. There's a playlist there so you can make sure you're with us here. But on Chapter 7, Dugan starts talking about the concept of civilization. And he says, we need a better definition of civilization because our very concept of the idea of civilization has been corrupted. The definition has been corrupted and kind of been wrapped around this idea of infinite progress. He says that civilization has kind of become, become synonymous with the idea of progress and the idea that humanity will always move forward in a very particular way, advance in a very particular way. And because civilization has been, been redefined in this way, the liberal worldview becomes the only one that is then understood as progress. Uh, so, Michael, let's go ahead and break down a little bit of that. So when he's talking about progress and its, uh, its different meanings, what, do, what does the redefinition of civilization do to kind of the mindset when we address different possible ways to look at politics and the way we organize society? Well, you get the sense now the rhetoric of civilizational identity, like he wrote even then, and we see evidence of that now as well, 
is rising. So there are a lot of recent articles on the civilization state, for example, or the idea that you know, Russia, China, Iran, they don't just represent savage or barbarian uh, remnants, you know, like they're the developing uh, world and we're the developed world, but rather they have completely different modes of interpretation. So that's what Dugan's mostly interested in, this idea that there are several different ways of interpreting the character of political life, of political time, of political morality, and so on. So the older view of civilization that he contests is that civilization is the outcome of a kind of maturing process, you know, that you leave behind the stages of savagery and barbarism, and that there's one model of being civilized. And because he sees this as a kind of ethnocentric um, universalization of one group's view of what it means to be civilized, he opposes that and he has this other model. So it's uh, many of the things that he talked about earlier in the book, they recur here in this new context. So civilizations will have their own kind of uh, myth, archaic, their interpretation of the past, the present and the future. They'll have their own, in some cases, religious traditions that won't necessarily match with everybody else's. And so um, each civilization, uh, well, let me take one step back. The main contrast is between civilization as a culminating phase or stage and civilizations as a simultaneously existing plurality of worldview types or of cultural types, something like that. So um, even as earlier in the book, he said, you know, the fourth political theory is going to reject individualism, class-based analysis, race analysis, and state analysis. And we talked a little bit about how Dasein, this uh, notion from Heidegger's philosophy comes up, or the people, the folk uh, comes up. For sure, one of the key uh, contenders for the main agents of the fourth political theory is civilizations. So some of the interesting things that he then kind of mines out of this examination of civilization, uh, one I found particularly interesting was the idea that civilization is is the point at which the it our kind of culture or our social system attempts to transcend the ethnos and tries to place itself in kind of the faith of systems of men, where the institutions become the thing that perpetuates it and it creates a universalization or at least as he'll address later the the kind of the illusion of a uh, of a universalization and i found that very interesting because that dovetails a lot with kind of what oswald spangler talks about in a decline of the west and he references spangler in this chapter as well but he's definitely in very similar waters where spangler talks about how you have a, a the cultural phase and then you have the civilizational phase and the cultural phase is animated by the metaphysical spirit of the uh, of the people of the group. It they're driven forward by this. Uh, the basically everything is done out of habit due to kind of who you are in your identity. And then when you move into the civilizational phase, these things transfer out of the realm of the metaphysical and into systems that are established inside this new civilizational progress uh, or process that needs to expand, that needs to universalize, that needs to apply its um, uh, kind of kind of what was once uh, propelled forward by the spirit now through systems of men it kind of it kind of materializes everything that was once metaphysical and he also talks about uh well no okay I guess that okay that was everything about that one but yeah I just didn't know if you want to comment on that transition 
between kind of the the spiritual, the animating spirit, uh, you know, the the cultural phase, and then into the civilizational phase where these things are are established through the uh, institutions of the civilization. Yeah, so it's a good point and a good observation. And uh, the idea that you could, let's say, become initiated into a civilizational mm -hmm. identity through kind of technical operations at a more or less superficial level. But in order to become initiated into, let's say, a tribal identity or an ethnic identity or even like a deeply religious identity, the process is much more substantive. It's much deeper. It's much more profound. So, yes, when a, when a smaller ethnic community universalizes itself or attempts to, whether it's successful in doing so or not, it allows this easier entry, lowers the bar of entry. The operations become technical. But a key point for Dugan, and this is... Uh, present in this chapter in an important way is that the substantive, difficult, um, profound side of identity, it doesn't just mysteriously disappear when we get into the superficial uh, layer of technical operations that allow us to become members of this or that civilization. It just goes deeper underground, but it's always preserved. So that's why even under the veneer of a universal technical operational civilizational identity there are these deep undercurrents and the idea of the undercurrents is important for him he writes about it in terms of for example the collective unconscious uh, or about these um the the that underlying daseins or the underlying ethno-sociological phenomena all of the different ways he writes about it are there to remind us not to be fooled by the veneer of universality because the substantive difference has only become harder to see. It hasn't become less relevant. And the more that it's repressed or suppressed or hidden, somehow the more it exerts its effect in mysterious ways. Uh, so that's very important for Dugan, even in later chapters where he talks about the, um, like the remnant of the component of the nation in certain forms of left-wing socialism, partially as we discussed last time too. So here too, that's there in the civilization side as well. Uh, and he always wants to, he, you know, it's easy to forget in some sense because it seems like we're a long way away from the realm of rituals of initiation into closed community. But he wants to remind us that those are still there beneath the surface of things. Yeah, and thanks for bringing up that that difficult that that easier entry as opposed to the difficulty of the tribe and joining the tribe because that was that was what I was reaching for there and I think that's a really important point for people to understand is the the ability that transition to something that would have been more holistic that would have been more natural that would have been deeply rooted into something that is kind of a facsimile but that allows a much wider number of people to join in but in in many ways it loses then much of what made it uh gave it this animating spirit uh i also wanted to touch on his uh him addressing the idea that myth and savagery do not disappear as you're saying these things don't disappear when people become civilized civilization relocates them into the realm of the unconscious and so he says, you know, far, far from thinking that we, you know, many people think, well, civilization means we've escaped the myths, we've escaped the savagery, we've escaped all this backward thinking that once bound the tribe together and we've advanced beyond it. And he says, no, you haven't advanced beyond it at all. You simply placed it into the unconscious and it becomes even more dangerous because now you're not even conscious of these things that are driving you 
uh, in this direction. You don't understand them. They're operating in a realm that you don't even look at. And all civilization has done is given you more effective tools with which to be savage. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, because the growth, obviously, the growth of military technology and other types of technologies, which we associate with civilizational progress, they, you know, that's a double-edged sword. Obviously, that cuts um, uh, cuts both ways for the sake of peace and for the sake of war. But there are other there are other parallels. Like um, Dugan is a channeling here or expressing criticisms, as he himself acknowledges criticisms that have now become not commonplace but you know he's not the only person deconstructing civilization to show that it's not um, devoid of savagery and barbarism but sort of rechannels them i'll give you a simple uh, example carl schmidt's concept of the political where he says that there's a tendency among those who invoke humanity they say we're on this we're the humanitarians we're fighting on behalf of humanity what that does is radically dehumanizes the people who don't share their own perspective so normally you have somebody recognizing that they're facing another human enemy and they're sort of on the equal plane of a, you know human friends human enemies and a nice configuration of the field of the political but when liberals say that they're fighting on the side of not just their group but humanity as such then that means they're automatically opposed not to a human enemy but to a subhuman or dehumanized uh enemy so to dehumanize the other is another form of savagery or barbarism because the, suddenly they lose all uh, all claim to any human decency altogether. So it's a similar principle here. When you invoke civilization on your side, you automatically, on the flip side of that, have rendered everybody else um, uncivilized. And therefore, you, you either have the task of bringing them up in a forceful way or of destroying them or of caging them off or, you know, whatever the case might be. So um, there are a lot of different figures. Uh, Giorgio Agamben fits in here, I think, to a certain extent. Schmidt, uh, the structuralists, all of which Dugan is concentrating in this way to show, as it were, the lie of a certain interpretation of civilization. Yeah, uh, I really love it, that. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, I really love that uh, that Schmidt point because he, he really makes an excellent uh, examination of the fact that when you when when you try to eliminate all these differences, when you try to say that there are none of these existential conflicts and you try to reunite everybody under liberalism, you're also implying that there is no other way to be human. This is the only way because this is humanity, because this is the way humanity uh, cooperates. Anyone who doesn't fall under the liberal system isn't human. And therefore there's, there's the friend enemy distinction doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear because you've united humanity under liberalism. It simply makes anyone who opposes liberalism an opponent of humanity. Exactly. And similarly here, the, the savagery and the barbarism, they don't disappear. They just get redirected, misplaced, uh, you know, deep, uh, deplaced, depositioned. And there are new acts of savagery and new forms of barbarism all under the veneer of civilization. That's so, according to that model. Yeah. According mm -hmm. to the older model. So he, he then goes on to kind of point out that postmodernism works to shatter this illusion that makes liberalism look at itself and realize that there are these underpinning assumptions. There are these, there, there is still this suppressed savagery uh, that's existing, that it hasn't escaped any of this stuff. And he also talks a little bit about uh, synchronic understandings of civilization. Could you explain that a little more? 
Sure. Two things I want to say. First is synchronic means that, again, civilization is not the final stage of a process leading through savagery and barbarism where we're the, you know, we have gone through what other people are currently going through. We stand at the end of the process. There's somewhere along the, you know, in the midst of the process. And because we're at the end of it, that's called being civilized. And because they're not, that's called, you know, being underway to civilization or being uh, second or third world in, in those terms. Uh, the, so that's the diachronic, meaning you become civilized through time in a progressive way. Synchronic means the stages of savagery, barbarism, and civilization coexist in time, and that there are more. There is more than one civilization. There are models of civilization coexisting, and so that's the point that he's trying to get to. Because against globalism, against global liberalism. There has to be a viable alternative. Dugan's model of a viable alternative, as he says in this chapter, at least in one perspective, is multipolarity. So opposed to unipolarity, multipolarity. Opposed to just a global world, a world of several uh, poles. And what are those poles? They are civilizations. So the only way that you can get to a world that's configured, not by a single ruler and not by just nation states, but rather by civilizations, you have to get to an understanding of civilization as plural. And so those are the steps that he's taking along the way. I did want to say that, um, yes, he credits postmodern thinkers, excuse me, sorry, he credits postmodern thinkers with having done the deconstruction of the pretensions of Western European modernity and all of that. But this is an important point because it makes, I think, some conservatives uncomfortable when figures embrace insights from postmodernity. And partially that's because a lot of the postmodern thinkers were on the left. They can be seen as enemies of civilization. They can be seen as enemies of, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, agents of destruction to a certain extent. But Dugan, who doesn't position himself on the left, believes, rightly, I think, that you can still take the insights that were developed by the left postmodern theorists. And you, and you sort of must, unless you're going to be philosophically naive, which is another option. And he does mention that. He says, you know, there are uh, neoconservatives who are just philosophically naive. There are Russian liberals who are philosophically naive. So that's, an, that's always an option. Um, and it probably goes a long way. But to the extent to which we want to under, actually understand these different phase transitions and what it means, that, you know, what the specific character of our times is, we have to incorporate the insights of these mostly French, not only French, but mostly French postmodern theorists on the left, not in order to go where they went, but in order to do something with what they did. So um, that's a big part of what he does, what he tries to say in this chapter. You know, the old view of civilization is no longer tenable. It's no longer tenable because of all of these studies that were done. I mean, you know, great acts of philosophical effort that were done by the structuralists, post-structuralists, and so on, cultural anthropologists. And Dugan summarizes, everybody should know, this is an important point in my view about the book, The Fourth Political Theory, I may have mentioned before. He often will make a small remark or observation that leads into another completely other set of books that he's written or, you know, hundreds of pages he's dedicated to a topic. So in this case, he has a book called Ethnosociology. It is available in English in two volumes. I translated it uh, where you can start to see how he applies the insights in more detail of cultural anthropology to thinking through what it means to be a nation state, a civilization, an ethnos, a tribe, a people. So it's a big, you know, it's a big, uh, a big topic. But yeah, all of this is to say, you get beyond the first model of civilization. You go to the idea of synchrony, which means, again, each, what we call civilized, contains savagery and barbarism in it, fine. 
Then we have the plurality of civilizations. And then you have this very important argument that that plurality of civilizations can serve as the basis for a new ideology, an ideology that must reach the level of global liberalism in its seriousness and in its capacity. Because you can't just have a bunch of, uh, you know, loser contenders to oppose globalism. There are many of them. But unless they rise to the level of globalism, you won't have a fight. You won't have a prospect of victory. So you need a model that's universal enough and broad enough, as we discussed again in other chapters. And here, the key insight is multipolarity, where the poles are civilizations. That's going to form the basis that allows us to have opposition, global opposition to global liberalism. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to take uh, to onboard that uh, point about postmodernism as well, because uh, Dugan does, and we'll talk about it in the next chapter here, he does explicitly say there are many evils of postmodernism. So he's not championing postmodern left thought in, in its uh, conclusions, but he is taking those important insights. And for those who are understandably and probably rightly uh, wary of Dugan's intentions in certain areas, remember, we're doing the same thing here, right? This is not an endorsement of Dugan. This is not uh, we, are, we are trying to better understand his thought, take the points that I think are good, are essential, uh, and then leave the things that we might not find useful or might or might find uh, politically motivated and whatnot. So I just want everyone to remember that is the general you know thrust of what we're doing. And it is specifically what Dugan kind of uh, advocates for when it comes to understanding certain parts of what have happened through the postmodern lens. It's not a general endorsement of uh, postmodernism. In fact, he explicitly refutes uh, parts of it here, as we'll see uh, moving forward. Yeah, one of the first lectures I ever watched of Dugan's when I was an undergraduate student, I was taking a class on international relations taught by a postmodernist. And there was a Dugan lecture on YouTube, I think it's been pulled because he had his channel pulled and he had a lot of content pulled. Uh, but it was called postmodernism is Satanism. It was like a nice five, a nice five minute uh, exposition of postmodernism as Satanism. It made perfect sense of the phenomenon of postmodernism. Uh, my, my, my professor wasn't very happy to, when I shared it with the class and when I talked to him about it, uh, himself identifying as a postmodernist. But yeah, Dugan's not a postmodernist, but you gain, you know, one of the things that he does, and you see it in this book and elsewhere, he is never averse to what we might learn, even from a school of thought that as a whole we reject. And what we might learn from experimental cross interpretations that don't necessarily follow the orthodox reading, but that can always open up new possibilities for thinking and for seeing. So he's always down for that kind of thing. Not everybody is. And um, the proof is in the pudding in a way. If we can get some new insights or we can get some new conceptual uh, perspectives or some new combinations and questions to think about, then we see that it was worth the effort. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So just gonna, to, to wrap up this chapter here, he talks about kind of the difference between uh, Samuel Huntington's uh, model of kind of the clash of civilizations versus Francis Fukuyama's uh, assertion of the end of history. Uh, he finds, of course, Huntington far more compelling than Fukuyama. In fact, he points out that Fukuyama had to, in many ways, go back and revise uh, his his project because it turns out history wasn't over. Uh, so he had to add, you know, new stages of the end of history where we kind of go into these nation building sessions. Uh, kind of a pit stop on our way to the end of history. And and he also then addresses uh, what you've hinted at multiple times, which is that uh, civilizations can serve as kind of a, uh, a way to fill the ideological gap between these different 
uh, opposing uh, small movements against globalism. It can create a, a, a larger force that can uh, actually uh, successfully oppose globalism as opposed to all of these smaller efforts, these internal efforts inside a particular nation uh, or, uh, or region that is not working at, right now. Mm -hmm. About the Huntington and Fukuyama, a quick point on that. Mm -hmm. So Dugan shows us that you can have compatible globalism and nationalism. How? When your nationalism is not ethnic nationalism or national populism or national conservatism, but rather when you're building a nation in order to overcome it. Trudeau once called Canada the first post-national state or something like that, but you can only become post-national once you've been national. So the idea is that in order to get to a post-national global order, you first have to build up nation states through the state development so that then they can overcome their state uh, their statehood so that's how you can combine globalism and nationalism in one perspective obviously nationalism is also opposed to globalism but that's when it's et ethno national or populist national or right national or something like that so that's an important point point. and then one other thing just for people who are trying to follow every thread here in case everybody uh in case anybody is like that you know wants to um, chase down these arguments wherever else they occur so Dugan used to be a professor at Moscow State University where he taught international relations theory. And he, in one of his textbooks that he wrote, he has a chapter on theory of a multipolar world, namely on his own theory of international relations alluded to in this chapter. I translated that as well. It's available in English, theory of a multipolar world. And he gives there uh, several different ways to understand the study of civilizations like in terms of their cultural codes, in terms of their education, in terms of, um, in terms of the internal structures. Like he goes through, here are, you know, here are 10 different ways, 10 different approaches to the study of civilization. They're all viable. And if we take all of the civilizations mentioned in this chapter and all of these methods of study, we'll produce a rich like encyclopedia of civilizational studies. So that's the book Theory of a Multipolar World worth looking at for uh, the multipolar side of things. Yeah, it is very interesting, that approach of uh, building up the nation state to create globalism, as long as it's the right kind of nation state. It has the echoes, of course, of Marxism. Uh, you know, we need to go further into capitalism before we can get to the revolution, uh, something that he'll he'll address again here later on as we uh, as we move through these chapters. Um, but uh, is there anything else you want to talk about the great spaces or his multipolar approach before we move on to the next chapter? So I just say briefly, um, you know, questions, there are secondary questions about a multipolar world of civilizations. How are they organized? Well, he refers to Carl Schmitt's uh, gross realm, order of large spaces. So there's sort of regional universalisms or regional blocks larger than a nation state, but smaller than the, you know, smaller than the world. They're miniature worlds. He mentions European Union as one example, Eurasian Union as another one. BRICS probably is one that they're... Uh, uh, he's engaged in at the moment, you know, building that up as a civilizational type block. So you have regional blocks, you have civilizations, you have their organization in regional blocks uh, in these gross realm. And then you have the specific legal uh, set of relationships among all of the players, like, you know, whatever kind of customs union it is. Or So there are those three levels and you can work your way up through the from the legal to the political to the philosophical, or you can work your way down. But he says that's going to be the new model for the construction of, uh, uh, you know, of the world after liberalism. Excellent. So our next chapter is about uh, the left being in crisis, kind of the crisis of philosophy on the left. Now, 
Very interestingly, uh, I think a lot of people on the right would just assume that globalism and leftist ideology is the same thing. Um, uh, he does not see it that way. He sees the the left as also in opposition to globalism, but he's talking about the in many ways the old left, which we'll get to here in a second. Now there are still many there are still many of these remnants. I myself have talked with a number of classical Marxists who are very angry at wokeness, who hate, you know, modern progressivism, that kind of thing. But these people are very small in number at this point, at least especially in the West. There's very few, you know, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of the left has happily followed along with kind of uh, progressivism and, and uh, liberalism triumphant, I guess, neoliberalism, whatever you would like to call it, post-liberalism. Uh, and so uh, when I refer to the left, I am usually referring to globalist forces, but it is worth pointing out here that there is a mostly defeated school of leftist thought that is in opposition to globalism in many, in, in many ways. Uh, and that's the first one he addresses here. So he talks about the old left and he kind of breaks it down into a couple groups, your Orthodox Mark, your Orthodox Marxists, your social Democrats, your post-social Democrats, and your European Orthodox uh, Marxists. Is there any part of that you want to go ahead and touch on kind of the old left's relationship with where we are now? I think you're right that they're less relevant socially, and he recognizes that. He says they haven't really taken into account the intellectual developments or the political developments transition from uh, industrial age to information age. They're still sort of like the old stodgy uh, defenders of compromises that um, you know, they don't really have the greatest relevance or significance, but it is important to be able to identify them and to be able to distinguish them as a category. But I think he, for him, they're the least interesting uh, group. Mm -hmm. All right, so then we'll go ahead and move beyond them there. The next group that he talks about is, of course, the new left. And the new left is uh, made up of many of our postmodern thinkers, right? It's made up of a lot of the the people that... Uh, that, that we've been talking about there. Do you want to address some of his yeah, thoughts just on the before, new left? Oh, sorry. Before go we go to the new left, so he sure. does say that's the... Uh, he says, if any of the leftist groups have a claim to be the leftist project, like an actual political vision, like a series of goals and aims and plans and taking over institutions and rewriting our moral codes and infiltrating uh, here, there and everywhere, that's the new left. Okay, the old, old Marxists aren't doing that. But before we get to the new left, I think it's worth mentioning in passing uh, this other group that some people who know about Dugan uh, know about with whatever degree of seriousness, which is the national Bolshe not national Bolsheviks or national Gauchists or the nationalized, le the national left. So this is different from the old left uh, because this group, the national Gauchists or the national Bolsheviks, they, and we mentioned it before, but it's worth saying again, I think they combine a so kind of social justice, anti-globalist, in some cases, uh, anti-American, uh, anti-capitalist type perspective with deep ethnic energies, deep national and archaic uh, energies. And so, uh, first of all, this is important because Dugin himself was involved with the project of national Bolshevism in Russia, where he tried to say, okay, on one hand, you've got the Soviet, you know, the, the remnant of Soviet ideology, but on the other hand, he's trying to put an emphasis on what's distinctly Russian, and there was a possible ideological path forward through the idea of national Bolshevism. He mentions that, you know, that national Bolshevik project turned uh it didn't go the direction he wanted it to so he abandoned it but it's still important to know and then when we look around today in our cultural and political context and social context 
I think there can sometimes still be the confusing observation when leftists who seem like they want to get away from all national identities or ethnic identities at the same time are doubling down on their non-European identities, Mm. you know? So like, it's almost like the European, to talk about your European identity is off the table, but to talk about your non-European identity is very much on the table in some of these circles. So that can be confusing, I think, because the, as Dugan puts it, the national element of those um, social, of those national Bolshevists is under theorized. So like, you know what I mean? It becomes a confusing situation. They're on the left, they're against, they seemingly are against identities, and yet at the same time, they're invoking uh, ethnic, tribal, archaic, or non-European, non-Western type identities. So he says that's rep- that represents a specific kind of movement, a mm. specific, with its own, uh, with a specific way of thinking it through. But it remains under-theorized. It's not the most serious movement. Um, it has some prospects, he says, like some prospects for what? For continuing to be relevant because... People's, people's, in his view, uh, ethnic, national, tribal identities still exert some dynamism. So if you combine that dynamism with the basic theses of the left, then you're going to have the continued relevance of this particular movement. Which, But he says, as I say, it's unorganized and it's under-theorized. So with that aside, national Bolshevism aside, uh, and by the way, an interesting piece by Dugan on this topic is called The Metaphysics of National Bolshevism, where you see he opposes the open society and Karl Popper. And he said he defines national Bolshevism as basically everybody who's against the open society gets categorized as a supporter of national Bolshevism. So that's a nice essay uh, to read. But yes, the new left, that's the big deal for him. That's where the action is politically, intellectually, culturally. That's what matters. And the new left, the postmodern left, as everybody I think now knows, I'm sure your listeners are more than most, uh, the new left, the postmodern left, they're rewriting the meaning of being human. You know, they're rewriting the nature of identity. They're all in on a kind of virtual uh, virtuality of the world instead of reality of the world. And he, he goes through that in a way that I think is helpful for people who aren't used to seeing these things brought together. Like, it's not just one left. The Marxist left is not the same as the national Bolshevist left is certainly not the same as the postmodern left. Yeah, the one that we see in kind of America and the forefront of the cultural revolution in much of the West does tend to come from the new left. So I think that's the one that everyone kind of focuses on. But it is uh, worth, especially as a guy who is attempting to pull together a new political theory, is attempting to kind of get a comprehensive look at the options available to recognize that there are, you know, there are still other uh, aspects of the left out there. So for the new yeah. left, he lists uh, a number of uh, of kind of projects that they have underway. I'm just going to read those out because they'll mm-hmm. set the frame for what we're talking about here. Uh, he talks about the rejection of reason. He references Deleuze and Guattari here. And then uh, the renunciation of man as the measure of all things, uh, overcoming sexual taboos. Of course, this is one most people are will easily recognize. Legalization of narcotics. Uh, a move to new forms of spontaneous and sporadic being and the destruction of uh, structural society and government in the service of new and free and uh, anarchical communities. Uh, so th- those are kind of the goals that he says are the projects of the new left. Mm-hmm. I mean, that captures a lot of it, I think, in a way that we see the rejection of reason. You know, that why, why a rejection of reason? Because what's the older model? The older model is that man is a vertically oriented being, that we have a nature. And at the top of our nature is our ability to reason. 
Our reason can be practical or theoretical. And at the top of even our reason is our theoretical capacity. So that man reaches his perfection in morality, practical reason, and in science or philosophy, uh, theoretical reason. That's like an old model of man. And virtue is that, practical and theoretical excellence. Okay, but the problem is, if you're against vertical hierarchies, then you have to displace the authority of reason. You have to say that, no, your instinct is as legitimate as your reason. Your deepest, darkest desires are as legitimate as your reason. In fact, they may be more legitimate than your reason. Your idea of the authority of reason may be a kind of false consciousness or a suppression of your true, authentic, non-rational self. So this, reje this rejection of reason, embrace of, uh, as he puts it, a conscious adoption of schizophrenia, right? So it's... Um, Anything that represents stability, order, hierarchy, naturalness, excellence, definition, form, ideal, all of that is out the window in exchange for these like um, schizophrenia, craziness, randomness, disorder, free, sporadic, spontaneous existence. I do think that captures the gist of uh, the gist of a lot of it. And we see the explanation for it. If you're against hierarchical communities, man himself is a hierarchical community. Therefore, you have to attack the nature of man, turn the arrows in on, uh, on our reason. Uh, yeah, for sure, sexual liberation, for sure, the legalization of all kinds of narcotics, I think is captures something of the zeitgeist, uh, doesn't it? Um, and it's important, I would say, to note that these tendencies for him, we mentioned before his views on postmodernism not being altogether positive. These tendencies lead to the destruction of the human essence. They lead to the destruction of the human being. They also have everything that uh, people are concerned about today. The social costs, you know, destroying families, destroying schools, uh, degeneration of higher education and things like that. But ult ultimately, they're dedicated to the destruction of the human essence because es human essence is essentialism. Essentialism is exclusionary, hierarchical, fascistic, oppressive, and so on. So this all culminates in a war on the human being. And um, for sure, that makes a great divide. Those who are against the human being and those who are for him. Which is very interesting because obviously this is where uh, Dugan, of course, attacks, uh, you know, the... Uh, this this new left this the, you know, these aspects of postmodernism he's he's not for the destruction of the human i find it interesting you know he he references deleuze multiple times in this and you know anti-oedipus i think is not taken as part of the postmodern canon by most right-wingers as much like a lot of people who study postmodernism don't focus on this but i think he rightly understands kind of the consequences of some of uh, of that uh, thought and how how much of an impact it has on kind of the goals of the new left, even if others uh, don't focus on it as much. But I also think it's interesting about the abandonment of reason, because in many ways, of course, this is what scares conservatives the most about postmodernism, and understandably so, is just the complete abandonment of reason. But I think in many ways, Dugan and others who are critical liberalism are not are they're not advocating the abandonment of reason. But the reordering of the understanding of humanity to put reason in its proper place. And so in ways, it's, uh, he is also asking, and many of us on the right who are exploring this are asking that reason be understood better as a part of human existence rather than the ultimate and only defining characteristic of humans. And so he's, you know, he would... I think push back against their complete rejection, but would not be against perhaps a 
a reordering or prioritizing of it. But maybe I, you know, you can expand on that. No, I think you're right. Uh, Dugan is not alone here. I think the next best point of reference is Leo Strauss. So mm -hmm. the problem is this: you have modern rationality. So if modern rationality is only a specific form of reason, then when you reject modern rationality, if you do, it doesn't mean rejecting reason as such. It means rejecting whatever was specific about modern rationality that left it sort of deprived of direction and vision and depth and left it just doing the sort of superficial calculation of life. Well, if that's the case, for most, so let's say here's one way you can configure it. Reason has led us into alienation from ourselves and from the deepest wellsprings of our meaningful existence. Therefore, we reject reason. That's one model, but Dugan and Strauss do not accept that model. Second one is in response to the failure of modern reason, we find an alternative that is not pure irrationalism. Dugan's alternative is, as you said, there's more to the human being than even than his thinking, although it gets kind of complicated here because um, I think at the end of the day, Dugan does privilege intellectual activity. But even so, there are other parts of our nature. There's more to being human. That's in part, that's all implied by his recourse to Dasein and to Heidegger. And all of us talk about myth and archaics. And it's one of the reasons I also categorize him somewhat as a mystical thinker, okay? Because mysticism or the Dionysian or however you want to conceive of that, that would be also part of uh, the deeper understanding of a human being. Strauss, an alternative that is well worth knowing. I don't know whether uh, your listeners have read much Leo Strauss, but I have to put him on the record here. He says, you know, you go from modern rationality to pre-modern reason, but we don't know what pre-modern reason is unless we learn to study the pre-modern philosophers adequately, Plato and Aristotle first and foremost. So uh, both of these guys, Dugan, and, Dugan for sure, is thinking about how do you get away from the degenerate character of modern rationality without just running into the hands of schizophrenia and uh, insanity and you know deliberate stupidity, and there's a, it's a big task because there's something there's something worth uh, taking seriously in the criticism of modern rationality, but to run from that into the from the frying pan into the fire uh, would be a total mistake. What we need, and this is always part of Dugan's like topography. Strauss's as well. We need to go not just away, but deeper, deeper to where did things go wrong? What was man before he got parceled out into these uh, superficial elements, you know? Um, and when we have a more authentic, more integrated, deeper and accurate understanding of the human being, we can preserve both our rational and intellectual tendencies and our spontaneous, sporadic, free, dynamic, chaotic tendencies without the cheap version of either one of them. You know, you get their actual, true, genuine relationship, but only if you go deep. Absolutely. And the last part of this, I don't know if you want to touch on it, is specifically about leftism in contemporary Russia. I don't know if there's anything you want to, uh, that's very specific, but... No, I'll just say that in uh, in all of the questions that he raises throughout the fourth political theory, he's always going back and forth in a way from the general statement, which could apply to anybody anywhere, which is why we're able to talk about it, you with the US, me in Canada, and try to understand what it means for the Western world and for ourselves. And then he'll also sometimes go back and comment, what is this like specifically in the case of Russia? And he does that here, he does it elsewhere. It is important for him that the Russian question is not... Um, merely local or particular or of interest, private interest. 
he does think globally or generally that the prospects for a multipolar world depend in a fundamental way on whether Russia can assert itself. So he has a local particular interest in Russia, but he also has a sort of universal general interest in Russia because without Russia's revival or rebirth, there can't be multipolarity. But in that chapter, he doesn't go into those details. He just says, you know, he just does his little overview about how postmodernism is starting to affect Russia through art and through um, te- like uh, apps, you know, people, it's kind of like, this is kind of an important point that when people are browsing their phones on TikTok or they're doing whatever they're, you know, they watch some show, this is kind of like a Spy Kids 2 thing from earlier, mm-hmm. together with the media that they're consuming, they're imbibing postmodern moral codes, not because they're reading postmodern tracts, but because the postmodern morality is built into the education and the entertainment and the um, the medium. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So his next uh, his next chapter here is liberalism and its metamorphosis. So he's talking about kind of that shift, uh, the shifts within liberalism uh, from from one of competing philosophies to one of dominant philosophies and kind of. Uh, what that means over time. Uh, he lays out here, uh, liberalism is a summary of Western civilization and its definition. And we can just go ahead and read off again a few of these here. It's very helpful to kind of set the frame. But he says, uh, it's a political and economic philosophy ideology embodying itself in the most important uh, force lines of the modern age and epoch of modernity. And he lines out some of its tenets, uh, the understanding of the individual as the measure of all things, belief in the sacred character of private property, the assertion of equality of opportunity as the moral law of society, belief in the uh, contractual basis of all sociopolitical institutions, including government, abolition of any government, religious, or social authority that lays claim to the common truth, separation of powers, and the making all social systems of control over any government institution whatsoever, the creation of a civil society without race, peoples, and religion in place of traditional government, the dominance of market relations over any other form of politics and kind of lays those out as the basic tenets of liberalism. Uh, do you want to respond to their kind of his definition of liberalism or uh, modern? Liberalism? No, I think it's, I think it should be familiar to people as a kind of classical as what we call classical liberalism. So when people today say liberalism and they mean wokeism. And then they try to oppose wokeism on the basis of something else they call liberalism. It's, you know, this is classical liberalism. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know his thought well enough to really say, but I think roughly, you know, this is like uh, when people like James Lindsay oppose wokeism, they're not talking about going to Evola and Gwen right. and Schmidt. They're talking about going to, you know, civil society without races, peoples and religions, separation of powers, dominance of market relations, right? And individuals and measure of all things. So this represents your good old fashioned classical liberalism uh, more or less. And then he talks about uh, freedom from as kind of the defining dogma of liberalism. And he has a, a very powerful uh, uh, passage here a little later about freedom from, which I'll, I'll read out when we get there. But he kind of talks about how uh, increasingly liberalism needs to free everyone from, uh, from ideas of like church, class, race, you know, any ethnic attachments, any kind of collective identity whatsoever. whatsoever. And uh, this is something that I've talked about a lot. Um, This is 
liberalism, yes, but I also think it's interesting, and he doesn't do this here because I don't know if he's interacted with uh, the thought of Bertrand de Juvenal. Uh, I don't know if he references de Juvenal, Juvenal anywhere else, but de Juvenal actually identifies these actions as the actions of the centralization of power. He says that in order for power to centralize, it must take the um, it must take the responsibilities because duty and responsibility uh, dependency is what builds sovereignty. And so because uh, people have duties to their their religions, their ethnic communities, their families, uh, their their neighborhoods, they therefore cannot be completely dependent on the social uh, the government that these these uh, intermediate social spheres uh, keep the government's power from growing and becoming total. And he says that basically for power to become total, for the government to take total control, it must collapse these spheres. It must remove those spheres of responsibility. And so it's very interesting because I often see people identify liberalism or capitalism as a particular uh, ideology that demands these things. But I think it's also interesting to remember that these things show up in other ideologies that wish to centralize control through state power. And so he, he does identify these as liberalism here, but I think it's also interesting to remember that liberalism is not alone in its need to collapse these fears if the state wants to accrue more power. And one of the reasons, reasons liberalism has reigned triumphant is not just that it's the most compelling thing on the market, but that it's the best thing for states to use to centralize their power. It's the most resilient thing for them to use to centralize power. Mm -hmm. uh, the very important uh, big picture points there. Uh, other ones that come to mind for me that may be related, you know, um, Strauss, he called Hobbes the first liberal because Hobbes was the first person to put an emphasis on uh, rights and on the idea that we need to get away society is based on what we need to get away from what we need to be free from to a certain extent and not what we're going towards so the classical political philosophies they organized their understanding of political life as culminating in man's perfection whereas Hobbes organized his political teaching as we're getting away from a state of nature we're getting away from a state of scarcity getting away from a state of violence nature becomes something that we get away from not something that we fulfill for Strauss, that was important as a characterization of the first liberal teaching. And on, in Hobbes, we have the Leviathan. So a combination of great state power on one hand and of uh, rights-based teaching on the other. So you're probably right that there are other instances where these two things um, go together. But still, it, whether we put the emphasis on the centralized uh, centralization and totalization or whether we put it like he does here on the liberation from various attachments and things like that, uh, I think that um, for Dugan, one thing that's important to see, freedom from, freedom from external this, freedom from external that, it transforms. This is a key point. That's why I'm mentioning it again. It transforms into freedom from internal constraints as well. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's able to trace wokeism, let's say to a certain extent, what we know today as wokeism, he's able to trace it not only to its leftist postmodern roots, but also and importantly to its liberal roots. Because transgenderism, let's say, this is his presentation in a book called The Great Awakening versus The Great Reset, liberation from gender identity is just the next phase of freedom from. And it will be followed by liberation from human identity. 
Because to be free from means to be free from any collective identity, including gender identity and including human identity. So there was a debate recently, you know, should we trace wokeism to Marxism or to liberalism? Should we trace it to, you know, which of those um, two sources? And here in these last two chapters, we see Dugan giving a mutual account. It, rise, it will rise from liberalism and it also rose from the left uh, critique of liberalism. So the next uh, thing that he addresses is the universalization of the definition of nation through liberalism in order for liberalism to properly interact with other uh, with other political entities. It needed to standardize kind of the definition of what a nation would be. And so it imposes its understanding of collectivism or lack thereof or its understanding of political organizations across kind of the globe so that it can uh, so that it can properly interact with uh, with those different uh, uh, those entities. He also then talks about the challenge of Marxism. Well, before we go to the challenge of Marxism, do you have anything uh, about just kind of how uh, the liberal the liberal definition of nationalism? Yeah, it's worth it's a concept worth uh, being familiar with and understanding, you know, liberal nation states are contractual agreements among individuals that constitute them as citizens. So there's no there's nothing there about like a natural identity or an essential identity or again, tribal, ethnic, uh, archaic or religious identity. It's individuals, contracts and juridical notions, you know, the the it's citizenship as a juridical notion which is already abstracted. You know, if we start with the ethno-sociological model, by the time you get to the na national state, the liberal national state, the civic national state, you've really pushed the ethnic identity, tribal, religious, archaic, uh, unconscious down, and you're in the realm of total conscious construction. Citizenship as a juridical category is a conscious construction designed to basically abstract from everything that's not individual about us in order to build these... Um, New, identity neutral, as it were, um, nation states. And so for him, that's a logical step in the development of liberalism. As you said, liberalism had to accomplish that. And then after after the national states would be, you know, the, the civil society, global civil society, where basically the whole world becomes, a, a, you know, you become a citizen of the world. But your identity is still this sort of juridical abstract category of citizenship. Um, I add, not that there's anything wrong with that, but from Dugan's point of view, we have to distinguish that from the other uh, forms of nationalism and the other forms of uh, state identity. Yeah, if you want to look into this and other sources too, people like Joseph de Maestra uh, uh, approach this and, and talk about kind of this, this silly notion of this. Even Schmidt uh, talks about how you can't get a man to die for an economic zone, which is always one of the ones I, I thought was a very poignant uh, point from him. But just... This, this shift of national identity from something that is inborn, that is something that is key to one's understanding of, of your place in the world, to being something that you contractually enter for, for some kind of benefit uh, that, could be, that could be added or lost with a stroke of a pen is a, is, a, is a relatively new notion and something we should keep in mind when we're understanding kind of these concepts. Uh, but the challenge of Marxism here, so he kind of just brings in uh, you know, in some ways that Marxism is an extension of liberalism, that it's 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 its critiques are mainly that liberalism does not provide many of its promised benefits or promised uh, outcomes. And so it needs to uh, kind of remake 
liberalism in order to bring about kind of uh, a, a more fulfilled uh, version of its uh, of its promise here. I, I don't know if you want to comment on that with the points they have there. Uh, just that he has this nice again bullet point summary of the differences yeah. from liberalism. So you get away from a con you get away from a contract type agreement you get away from the um, private property it's just a nice people will be familiar enough i think with the idea of a marxist criticism of bourgeois liberalism but it's a nice short summary of what that was point by point and uh how neoliberals responded to the marxist challenge with the reassertion that liberalism is not just a stage on the way to um communism but that it's its own proper stopping point and all of that so here he's really he's not i mean there are books and books and books written you know sure. about each of these points in great detail what he's doing is providing a short concise summary of these movements so that he can help us to understand where we are now how we got here and what the prospects are ahead of us so nobody should expect this to be um, you know more than that but it captures it i think the important point here is that if you read a book let's say you read a very brilliant thousand page book on some movement of marxism You'll see that, but you won't see where it fits in with all of the other transformations before and after. And it won't get you to the relevant point that we're at now. So that's the benefit. Even though he shrinks his account of Marxism down, he lets us see it in the in the context of the bigger picture. And uh, that's what he does here quite effectively, I think. Yeah, and like you said there, I think it's important that he stops and points out the kind of these, these new liberals... Uh, and here he specifically, uh, you know, cites people like Mises and Hayek, people that many, you know, paleo libertarians will be big fans of and talks about how they, again, reassert uh, th this idea that actually um, Marxism isn't a progress. It, is, it isn't a step after liberalism or capitalism, but is instead a regress. And they redefine Marxism as a return to feudalism as opposed to a, a step towards uh, kind of the promise of liberalism or or the inevitable uh, action after liberalism. Right. I just want to say one thing about that, which is that it reminds us that the meaning of a process is open to dispute. Is it a step forward or is it a step backward? You know, so back when Dugan talked about the different notions of time and later in the book where he's going to revisit that from another perspective and the question of reversibility of time, it's another example, you know, is liberalism, which is more progress, which is more advanced? Is, is communism a step back, like the neoliberals suggest, or is it a step forward, like the communists suggest? So we always have the key dispute here over what the trend, what the genuine and true direction of these processes is. Right. So then he moves on. He talks about kind of with the fall of the USSR, of course, uh, the liberalism is ascendant in the 1990s. And we start to see kind of the implications of the end of history, the end of political struggle, that there is only one dominant, uh, uh, you know, unipolar uh, power and, uh, and political uh, uh, organization in, in kind of acceptable in the globe. Uh, very interestingly, he talks about neo neocons understanding the implications of this better than most, and he attaches this back to kind of the American tradition of manifest destiny. That uh, you know, basically, this is the global ascension of America and uh, in manifest destiny, well beyond its own borders, and achieving kind of an American century. You know, of course, was the was the terminology of the time. Uh, kind of the American way as a global order. But he also takes time to point out that people like Pat Buchanan 
pushed back against this and said that America will have won the world, but will have lost itself. And so he's recognizing that while many inside kind of uh, the Western order understood this as an American empire and the chance for America to have basically global domination, there were still many inside America who understood the consequences of what that would mean. And that would mean the loss of American identity itself. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's still the case, isn't it, that you have people like uh, Pat Buchanan and his followers and neoconservatives, whether now they're in the Republican Party or Democratic Party, a lot of them have moved, as it were, back to the Democratic Party. Um, I think you're right. It is noteworthy that he credits the neoconservatives, which you wouldn't necessarily expect, given everything else that yeah. you know we've learned about Dugan throughout the book. But it's very important because he says they understand what's at stake ideologically. Yes, Dugan doesn't agree with the position that they're taking, but somehow they're the most consistent position. Liberalism won. It inherited the right to modernity. It now has to universalize itself, expand itself, extend itself, normalize itself, and do all of those kinds of things. And uh, they see that and they understand it. So credit where it's due. Those people in the American context who understand what's happening ideologically, they get called out uh, positively in that uh, in that case. Will Crystal, William, Bill Crystal, William Crystal mentioned by name. Uh, you know the again the people never, but basically never Trump uh, Republicans who move to the Democratic Party. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with that. Again, we're just trying to identify the identify the relevant groups. So yes, uh, all of that is there in this chapter, and. Uh, American neoconservative circles most adequately perceive the significance of the large-scale changes happening in the world. Uh, for them, ideology remains the most important subject of attention. Very important. Uh, I wonder, I guess we'd have to think about it, whether that's still uh, still the case, uh, you know, whether there are now other groups who are paying more attention to. You know, I think that we could no longer say the neoconservatives are the only ones who are aware of what's at stake ideologically. Um, because there's a growing interest, especially in the last couple of years, of uh, right-wing anti-liberalism and other alternatives to the global American empire and to the Great Reset. So the situation has changed a bit. But uh, but yeah, that was a fascinating point of his, for sure. I was surprised to have read it. Absolutely. So the next part that he talks about is kind of liberalism's interaction with postmodernism. And he points out what I think most people at this point understand now, uh, that liberalism looks at kind of what postmodern postmodernism asserts and they start running away from it because the the implications he describes them as grotesque which i think is is kind of good here and actually he's got some handy bullet points so i'll just run down them real quick once again uh thus arises the panorama of post-liberal grotesqueries uh the measure of things becomes not the individual but the post-individual uh the d of individual uh, accidentally playing as an ironic combination of parts of people. Uh, and then here he kind of brings in a, a little bit of Deleuze with the, with kind of the body without organs there and, and uh, the way cyborgs and mutants that can arise from this. Uh, private property is ideal, idealized and uh, uh, transcendent, uh, transcendentalized uh, and transforms from that which a man owns to that which owns him. Equality of opportunity turns into equality of contemplation of opportunity so this is the, the the big debate going on today with so many conservatives and classical liberals but we meant quality of opportunity not uh, equality of outcome or equity uh belief in the uh, con uh contractual character of all political and social institutions grows into equalization uh, uh of the real and the virtual 
and the world becomes a technical model. All forms of non-individual authorities disappear altogether, and any individual is free to think about the world however they see fit. Principles of separation of powers transforms, transforms into the idea of electronic referendum. Uh, again, we kind of see uh, this transformation of the voting system and input here. Uh, civil society completely displaces government and careers into a global cosmopolitan melting pot. Again, if you want to see some more thought on that from the right, you can look at uh, Sam Francis and Leviathan and its enemies. And from this econ uh, economy is destiny, it takes up the thesis of the numerical code that is destiny. So far as work, money, and the market and production and consumption, everything becomes virtual. Uh, and so it's very interesting that he kind of talks about, uh, and again, this was written in 2012, right? Or around there? The translation is 2012. I think the original Russian version is 2009, but yeah, some okay. time ago. So in many ways, this is, um, this is a little prophetic because uh, the, the kind of the postmodern revolution, uh, you know, the, the, the wokeness explosion hadn't quite hit its peaks yet. It was, it was still in kind of its incubation period in much of the uh, American academia and American culture. And so uh, he's describing kind of the reaction that classical liberals, again, like James Lindsay and maybe Sam Harris and others who are very uncomfortable with the right, but want to police what the left has become. And this is kind of why we can see this tension uh, kind of between the opponents of postmodernism and wokeness. Uh, some understand their deeper problems of liberalism and that the, these are in many ways consequences of liberal thought. Others just want to freeze liberalism in the place where uh, it was and don't want to look at what's want to see what's happening here is only as a Marxist subversion of what liberalism was. But uh, but Dugan here kind of lays out that here's all the things that are going to happen once liberalism really sees what postmodernism is transforming liberalism into. Yeah, absolutely. I, I th it's, it's probably going to be a relevant debate going forward, whether or not it is inherent to liberalism to lead to these grotesque post-liberal uh, uh, woke type theses and ideas or not. Obviously, a lot of people have a stake in defending classical liberalism as they see it or, you know, in seeing Marxism as the only source of the contemporary perversions. But uh, there's a case to be made, and Dugan is making it as best as he can in this and other works, that it's inherent to liberalism to transform itself. In its desire to liberate from these external authorities, it liberates from internal ones, and then you get, again, liberation from reality as such, total virtuality, you know, liberation from, um, from all of these things leading to the crazy state of affairs that we're seeing more and more now. So that's a question. That's why... Wherever we land, I would say on that question, this is kind of my uh, editorializing here, wherever we land on the question of whether liberalism itself is to blame or not, for sure we would benefit in number one, considering the claim that it is, and number two, uh, relatedly, considering therefore that the solution lies outside of the realm of liberalism. And this is where he has a great quote on freedom from. He says, freedom from is the most disgusting formula of slavery as much as it attempts man to uh, an insurrection against God, against traditional values, and against the moral and spiritual foundations of his people and his culture. Uh, so kind of strong words there uh, against uh, this this idea of freedom from. Uh, he talks a little bit here, of course, again, about liberalism in contemporary Russia. Uh, but then the last section here of this chapter is going to be the most controversial one. Uh, so we want to hit this before we kind of uh, run too long here. 
uh, the crusade against the West. Uh, and here he specifically calls for a crusade against the West, a crusade against America. Um, many people will uh, read this as just his opposition against kind of the American empire or the wider Western empire and, uh, and, and kind of liberalism and the liberal idea or the, the idea of uh, Western liberal democracy. Others will read this as an explicit call to attack uh, America itself or to displace America uh, in, in its current geopolitical position. Obviously, that is part of Dugan's uh, goal, to be sure. Uh, and so this will be something that, uh, again, understandably uh, is is met with a lot of controversy. But I wonder if you want to uh, talk a little bit about Crusade Against the West here or what he means by that. Well, for him, it's the fact that liberal unipolarity is located spatially and geopolitically it's it's the it's you know it's the western world and it's first and foremost america that is where now it doesn't mean destroy america because one of the things people may or may not remember is that um dugan supported trump and in great awakening versus the great reset he says that the war against the great reset has to happen in america among americans you know it's going to be america's own liberation from the from its takeover from the perversion of america so you have to everyone will have to judge for themselves whether he speaks out of both sides of his mouth on this point or not my view is it's pretty clear for him that unless you throw down the gauntlet to american century to american unipolarity to the global american empire you can't get any of this off the ground that's the first step doesn't mean the destruction of america but it does mean no globalist america okay at a minimum he writes elsewhere and um i write about this in some of the some of the essays that i have on dugan he says somewhere for sure in the great awakening book and elsewhere in one of his heidegger books says i'm not against the west as such I'm against the modern political West, which is doing this egregious universalization. He says he loves the West. He loves the authors of the West. He studied all the French thinkers and German thinkers. And his book on civilizational studies called No Omachia, he has several volumes on all of the countries of the West. And he considers Heidegger the greatest philosopher. You know, he's writing all the time about Western thinkers. So all of this is to say he doesn't hate the West as such. You know, for him, the two greatest thinkers, Plato and Heidegger. You know, we both consider them part of the Western tradition in that sense. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on where you stand on the issue, unipolarity, hegemony, global American empire, woke America, the Biden regime for him is the representative of all of these forces of evil in a, in a very serious way. Uh, they're the forces of the Great Reset. That is all a huge, uh, that is all a huge problem. And I think it is, um, you know, it's fair to consider could there be opposition to the ideology that Dugan has been criticizing without there being the elevation of a other force in the world? So if, this, if all of these ideological changes happen within America, maybe they will already prepare the global scene for multipolarity. Or maybe these changes will happen outside of America. You know, so it's not such an easy question. But for sure, he, not to sugarcoat it, you know, the West in its contemporary form is largely evil for him. Opposition to the West in its current form is therefore largely positive for him. And the only question is, well, the, only, the two main questions, on what grounds can you gain support for ideological, political, and so on opposition? You need something universal enough to appeal. 
Okay, so it can't be a narrow uh, Islamic nationalism or something. It has to be something big enough, like multipolarity. Um, and you know, how do you how do you do that, and how do you do it effectively? So, yeah, people people may not like uh, people who are all in on the West. But here's the here's the ambiguity. Uh, here's the ever present ambiguity with American readers of Dugan. Everybody, I think, who's opposed to woke liberalism, finds something that rings true. In Dugan's criticisms, hmm. something helpful, something true, and something profound, something funny at times. Okay, there's a lot there to like, and there are things there not to like. How do you square the circle? And do you take Dugan as being just thoroughly anti-Western, thoroughly anti-liberal, uh, liberty, thoroughly anti-American? Like, or can you combine the noble, decent, well-established and world historical American love of rights and freedoms with the criticism of degenerate woke liberalism with the help of theorists outside the West like Dugan. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Uh, we will go ahead and I think we've only got one uh, super chat here. So I'll just read that out real quick. Glow in the dark here for $2. We use the info of unit 731. We can post modern info. I think there's a joke there that I don't have the uh, reference for. Sorry, man, but I appreciate the super chat there. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, hear from Mr. Millerman all the different places we can find his excellent work. I teach at millermanschool.com. I'm on Twitter, M underscore Millerman, or just look up Michael Millerman on Twitter. And I have a YouTube channel where I put out a lot of free lectures on Heidegger, Dugan, Strauss, Plato, and other authors I read and study and teach. So main place is millermanschool.com. Otherwise, just uh, search me up online and you'll find everything I'm doing. Excellent. And like I said, guys, of course, we have uh, two talks before this. So if you want to make sure you have the context for this conversation, the links below to those are down in the description. Of course, this is your first time here please make sure to go ahead and subscribe to the channel. And if you want to listen to these broadcasts as podcasts, you can go ahead and subscribe to the Oren McIntyre show on all your favorite podcast platforms. When you do make sure you go ahead and leave a rating or review that really helps with all the algorithm stuff. Thanks for coming by guys. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.